This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. We have a special episode today, one devoid of political analysis or Donald Trump that focuses solely on what's happening in Israel and the likely ground invasion of Gaza by the Israeli Defense Force. For those who are not Jewish, it's hard to overstate the importance of a Jewish homeland. The state of Israel stands as a monumental testament to Jewish resilience, a sanctuary etched into the world's map, promising a refuge for Jews who have faced centuries of persecution. The importance of Israel to Jews worldwide cannot be understated. It's not just a state, but a beacon of hope, an assurance, and a physical assertion of the Jewish right to self-determination and security. This significance took on an even profounder dimension in the aftermath of the Holocaust, a cataclysmic event that underscored the urgent necessity for a permanent Jewish homeland. In the post-Holocaust world, the refrain, never again, wasn't just a slogan, but a solemn vow, a collective commitment by the global Jewish community. The establishment of Israel in 1948 was a pivotal moment in Jewish history, an embodiment of a collective resolve to never again be defenseless against such unspeakable atrocities. For Jews living outside of Israel, the country isn't just a distant land. It's an intrinsic part of their identity, a safety net. Amidst a history marred by persecution, from the Spanish Inquisition to Russian pogroms to the Holocaust, the existence of a Jewish state has been a comforting constant. However, the relentless attacks by organizations like Hamas have reignited a primal fear. These attacks aren't conventional acts of war. They echo the haunting memory of pogroms, violent riots against Jews characterized by destruction and death. The recent atrocities committed by Hamas are chilling reminders of a bitter past. Unlike the Nazis who attempted to conceal their heinous crimes, Hamas parades its intent to harm Jews. Their aggression is broadcast with an alarming number of global spectators either rationalizing or outright supporting these acts of violence. This phenomenon isn't just frightening, it's a painful echo of times when anti-Semitic violence was overlooked, condoned, or encouraged by broader society. The accusation that Israel somehow deserved its fate is wielded by some as a justification for terrorist acts. This narrative is not just oversimplified, it's dangerous. It erases the legitimate rights and historical connection of the Jewish people to their homeland. It also draws a false moral equivalence between a democratic nation's right to self-defense and the terrorist actions of a group intent on that nation's destruction. The world today is witnessing an alarming rise in anti-Semitism, with the conflict being used to justify attacks on Jews in cities far from the battlefields of the Middle East. For many, this global scenario rekindles the collective Jewish trauma and the pervasive feeling of insecurity that Israel's existence was supposed to mitigate. Now I want to be very clear, I stand with Israel. I stand with Israel yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
but I am also concerned for the innocent Palestinians. As I look and I watch to see what is happening, I see these mothers, these elderly children, and the funny thing is, they all look like the Israelis. It is one gigantic Semitic group. This has to stop, and it has to stop now. And now for the main event. We welcome back to the show our old friend Malcolm Nance. You may know Malcolm as the globally renowned expert on terrorism, extremism, and insurgency from his stunning new book, They Want to Kill Americans, the malicious, terrorist, and deranged ideology of the Trump insurgency. It became a New York Times bestseller and was his last book, The Plot to Hack America. Malcolm is the counterterrorism analyst for NBC and MSNBC. And Malcolm is considered one of the great African Americans in espionage by the International Spy Museum. But more importantly, he is also extremely well sourced on what's happening in the armed forces and has spent time on the front lines of Ukraine. So today, he shifts his expertise and perspective to Israel and the readiness of the IDF to invade Gaza and perhaps face Hezbollah on its northern border with Lebanon. Malcolm joins us with answers to our most burning questions, like, how did this even happen? So let's immediately go now to that conversation. Okay, so Malcolm, there's absolutely nobody better at this exact moment in time to be discussing what we need to discuss. So let's start with the alert that was issued by the FBI, mentioning the potential for violence in the wake of Hamas's brutal attack on Israel. What are you hearing from your sources as to the veracity of the alert and what are the potential targets? Well, you know, I'm discussing this with various terrorism professionals and people who are also commentators in the news media who, who know quite a bit about this. But right now, this is all a, a protective measure, which is being put in place just to make sure that somebody who might have seen this attack uh, in Israel uh, might have excited them would want to do something that was aspirational in nature and that would move them from that aspiration to actually carrying out an act of violence. So I think especially coming up uh, towards the Sabbath, uh, having law enforcement out show as a national show of force to uh, make people aware that you're entitled to your, your the right to free speech. You know, if you want to support, if, if an individual wants to support Hamas, they have a right to do that. But when you go from opening your big mouth to uh, thinking about carrying out an act of violence against, uh, you know, the American Jewish community, uh, let me rephrase that, Jews who are Americans, like all the rest of us, then law enforcement is going to take a pretty dim view. They're going to start putting their feelers out. They're going to do protective measures uh, like protecting not just synagogues themselves, but the routes to the synagogues, Jewish schools. Uh, and also other places, um, you know, they may, in fact, you know, keep a, 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 a low level watch on mosque because we saw when ISIS was in power, they would attack a mosque. Uh, and so would also extremists in this country. Tensions are very high right now because of what's going on in uh, Israel. So, you know, I think this is a good move. Yeah, except I think this is a little bit more substantial than the kid who pulls the fire alarm to get out of right his math exam 
the former Hamas leader, Khaled mm-hmm. Mishal, he went ahead and he openly called for a day of jihad on Friday the 13th, telling Muslims all over the world to take to the streets and protest against mm-hmm. Israel. And it's not just in order to create this jihad against Jews. It's against anyone who is non-Muslim, any infidel, as he so stated. You know, re- this is a serious yeah. call, because it's not just New York. This is California, it's Boston, it's Florida. And that's, you know, it's also England. It's also, you know, Italy. In, I mean, it's any location where they already know that there is a Jewish population, regardless on how big or how small. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're you're absolutely right about that. However, I, I want to call, I want to bring you back to the period when this threat started in 2014 with the Islamic State, ISIS, right? Islamic State of Iraq and uh, the Levant, ISIL as they call it in the intelligence community, which were, which did the exact same thing. They made an, an international call for jihad, but unlike Gaza, they were calling for people to come to their newly established homeland, which they carved out of mass murdering tens of thousands of other Muslims. I suspect that this, even though this may be more of a propaganda ploy by Hamas, uh, now that they've been, they've been badly damaged. I'm gonna tell you something on the backside of the conversations that are happening in Arabic about uh, you know, Palestinian liberation, Palestinian resistance. They are very upset with the accusation that they killed children in a brutal manner, which is laughable because there is photographs of it. There are eyewitnesses to it. But, you know, when you're talking about fighting the propaganda game. So I believe that Hamas is making this call in order to see where the fingers of support that they can bolster around the world. Look, there have been protests in favor of Palestinians. Uh, there have even been protests in favor of Hamas, uh, you know, in the United States and you know, Europe. Uh, and, and, and you know, I famously just the other day went completely off on a uh, Black Lives Matter chapter out of Chicago that used the, uh, you know, the photograph of, the, you know, the image of the paraglider uh, with a Palestinian flag as the symbol of their negative statement against Israel. We got it taken down. But, you know, calling for support to a terrorist act will only bring out a class of individual who may um, find it exciting, who may find uh, like the diaspora that went over to ISIS a home for their, you know, Mm -hmm. their, uh, you know, their lot, you know, their, be quite honest, worthless lives. uh, And as they say in Arabic, right, to establish the life of the battle, right, of the hero. The Islamic hero, you know, with the sword. That's what Hamas is calling for. They're, you know, as much as they make a religious call, Hamas has, since its inception, been a nationalist movement. They are about land. And only recently with this attack in the last two years, and I called this on television, I said this, this was not an attack that was planned in months or weeks. This was a multi-year operational plan in which every resource of Hamas went into attacking on the 50th anniversary of the 1973 war plus one day, right? 50 plus one. 
I called it. And and they are they were looking to actually exterminate series, you know, areas of that border in order to push out and to put this in line with what he said, what Hamas command said that very day, plus this call to a day of jihad, uh, which is which is almost laughable. We've seen this before, is that he they were also calling on that very day for Palestinians to leave Gaza and to flow out into the settlements and to start killing people, taking what they wanted. They fully intended to occupy ground. And it took, you know, approximately 72 hours for the Israeli army to kill the entire assault force of 1,500 fighters. But I think that, that, that this day of jihad is actually going to end up a, a phenomenal public relations failure. Uh, but it does require us to be cautious. We don't know where their acolytes and fanboys uh, are presently. Yeah. But going back to this guy, Khaled Mishal, first and foremost, he's based in Qatar. All right. And I'm a little bit surprised that they permit him to remain there because from my understanding, and I certainly don't have significant experience or understanding of this conflict. In fact, I've never been to Israel, but I do have a lot of friends from Qatar. And my understanding, and especially someone who had spent time with people from Qatar, they're not enemies to the Jew. They're just, they're, they're not. And so how they could allow this guy to remain there in their land, calling out, and I'm going to quote this guy, tribes of Jordan, sons of Jordan, brothers and sisters of Jordan, this is a moment of truth, and the borders are close to you. You all know your responsibility. This is this, what this guy, Michelle, was saying in that recorded right. statement. To all scholars who teach jihad, to all who teach and learn, this is a moment for the application of theories, right? I mean, this guy is calling for an all-out jihad throughout the entire world. Yes. I, I, I don't get, I don't get it. Done I don't get it. Before, uh, I mean, Osama bin Laden called for a global jihad. Ayman al-Zawahiri, his deputy, called for a global jihad. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in Iraq called for a global jihad. The, you know, uh, the, the the leader of ISIS, uh, you know, after Baghdadi was killed, called for a global jihad. Every one of these guys called for jihad in hoping to invoke a religious obligation. That's what jihad is. However. They always do the exact same corruption of the Islamic term um, in the exact same way. This is going to be a failure. Jihad actually means to struggle with the internal self to be a better person. They are talking about the what they call the defense of the realm of Islam. However, jihad cannot just be called by some guy. And this is what happened to ISIS. This is why bin Laden went down in flames. Um, ISIS had land, and that's why people emigrated through Turkey to that place. Those people are all dead, okay, with a few exceptions of some ISIS wives that are in refugee camps, almost to a man. Every person who picked up arms in the Islamic State is dead. And that's what's going to happen to Hamas. You know, I was trying to get the hashtag Hamas extinction uh, going yesterday. But listen, full disclosure— 
I leave tonight for Doha, Qatar. And I'm not going to be there long. I'm moving on to Abu, uh, to Abu Dhabi, and I'll be seeing from the Gulf states their perspective on things. But let me explain why Doha is, you know, the uh, sort of the national version of Jesse Jackson, uh, you know, when he, was a, when he was going out and being a diplomat. The Qataris see themselves as mediators between the two extremes, right? Being ultra, 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 insanely conservative uh, jihadists, uh, and, of course, uh, those people who want full, you know, rapprochement movement towards Western values, to a certain extent, the way they have in the United Arab Emirates. The Saudis, on the other hand, are a completely different entity, okay? They, and they actually have conflicts with Qatar all the time. The Qataris were the people who hosted the Taliban during the peace negotiations between the United States Donald Trump's administration and the Taliban. It's where all the Taliban fighters who were released from captivity were allowed to come as a neutral space. They often host these extremist voices in hopes of using Qatar as a neutral space in which negotiations, like getting back the 150 hostages, might be settled from. You also have to understand, Qatar is also the location of the largest U.S. military base in the Middle East. So, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this, the Qataris like to play it both ways. And I think it might have some benefit. Yeah. But to allow this guy to talk, Qataris can't stop it. Well, they can't stop him if they want to. Uh, I mean, you know, First Amendment constitutional rights don't apply in Qatar if, in fact, the emir decides that this is not good for their country either. Let's not forget, you're 100% correct. There has been an ongoing feud between Qatar and um, Saudi Arabia, who's constantly, you know, look, Saudi looks at them as sort of, you know, their bastard younger brother, but now they have become so financially wealthy uh, in their own right, and they are playing legitimate roles in the world, uh, you know, to the same, if not even sometimes to a greater extent than Saudi Arabia, and so hence the conflict. But I wanted to bring up something. You recently posted an absolutely, and I, and I got to say this to my listeners, an absolutely incredible, incredibly important paragraph by Patrick <clears throat> Fox, who said that, and I'm going to quote it, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, has handled this very intelligently. When the full extent of the Holocaust was discovered by advancing Allied troops, General Eisenhower famously ordered the press be shown the entirety of what had transpired. He understood it had to be documented, otherwise no one would believe it. No one wants to believe people are capable of such atrocities. <clears throat> the advent of social media has allowed Hamas and its fellow travelers to engage in digital barbarism, proudly proclaiming the evidence of the medieval horrors they have visited on the Israeli people for all the world to see <clears throat> online. Yet even now, most people are unwilling to believe one human being can do such things to another until the international press can confirm for them that it actually That's happened. Right. Document it all, though as many varied outlets as possible. So mm -hmm. do me a favor. 
Unpack for my listeners what the IDF has found and what the press needs to show. I mean, how bad are these atrocities? Okay. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I've been watching the videos of these atrocities. I worked this mission for over 30 years. Uh, the Middle East, the East, uh, East Mediterranean Sea. First dialect I learned in Arabic was Palestinian Lebanese dialect. Um, let me tell you something. I've watched the videos. I've seen Hamas's videos. I've seen the, some of the hostage videos. I've seen the execution videos, the shooting people at roadblocks, the suicide, uh, the, uh, the uh, paragliders coming into the Nova Festival. This is real. This is happening. It's as horrible as anything I've seen with ISIS. And I'm just waiting, waiting to see what videos are going to start leaking out of Gaza. Because let me tell you something about the mindset of these terrorists, okay? There's something horrible that trips in their head to the point where they can carry out, not just carry out the atrocities, where they want to brag about the atrocities and put what they specifically did with their face that their friends and family would know. Their yeah. friends and family would know who they are to show that they killed this person, they killed that person, that they have the blood of, of, of what they call the occupiers on their hands. But how do you shoot a child through a baby seat, right? That's one photograph out there that I saw which was a child was in a baby seat and the bullet goes right through where the child's heart was and it's just awash with blood, all right? This had to be done by hand, by the hand of men. And this is why I have spent the last two days equating them to, with ISIS. I mean, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu made this today, this statement today. We have seen also, if you, I don't want to tell you where to go to find some of these things, but some of the Israeli... Um, um, Mogan David, the, uh, the Red Cross and uh, other paramedic teams that have gone down there that are processing the bodies are putting the images, you know, with digitized faces, but they're putting the images of the dead, both the dead Hamas and the dead Israelis, because they feel that you really need to know. This thing is horrific. It's horrific. The only thing we haven't seen, I'm going to tell you, there's, there's, I wrote a book. Uh, that is used throughout the United States government called the Terrorist Recognition Handbook. Uh, I wrote this book 15 years ago, and it's in its third edition. The only thing we didn't see was a hijacking of an airplane and the immolation of an individual. But the Red Cross and the paramedics have said individuals were clearly doused with, with, with a, a, a liquid and set a fire alive. All right? Everything that has happened before is happening, but it all happened in one 48-hour period. Hamas strictly, clearly directed every one of those terrorists to kill every human being they saw because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't spare the the 25 Thai guest workers that were working at a farm. I saw the handheld video of them. Just before they were killed, they dragged them all into a room and executed them. They were from Thailand. There's, there are sub-Saharan African guest workers there. Black, white, Jew, Jews, Christian, Hamas didn't care. They killed them all. They killed dogs over there. They them yeah, didn't Antony Blinken said this morning? Yeah, Antony Blinken said this morning, I think it was like 32 
countries had people killed during this attack. 32 countries. I was amazed by that. It goes to, I mean, you're, you're, you're so right. Keep, keep going. Yeah, well, keep I'm, going. I'm just saying, you know, this. Oh, and, and here's, the, here's the worst part. All right. This is the part that disgusted me the most because I have to, unfortunately, because I've been working this mission for decades, I have to watch the videos. I had to watch all those sickening, horrible ISIS videos. I had to watch these because I need to know their tactics. I need to know what their mindset. You know what every one of them did? They systematically looted the dead for money and valuables. That's not jihad. All right? You don't go you don't in a righteous war go out and start checking for people for their wallet, the picture, you know, how much cash they have, what kind of watch they have, whether they have a Rolex or they don't have a Rolex. I mean, the 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 jihad the uh, um, Hamas uh bodies were found with with money stuffed in their pocket. What are you going to do with Shekhlim? Right? Go to Israel and exchange it? Put it on the market in Egypt? I mean, these people are... The, the, wait, let me rephrase that. Because every time I get into terrorism, these terrorists, yep. they're not people. They are entities, and we use this phrase liberally in my world, who must be destroyed, not killed destroy yeah i mean literally you know um they're still right now finding bodies it's really so sad i watched on cnn is this one gentleman he broke he broke my heart i never saw anything like this his daughter they found obviously she was one of um those killed initially and he was thanking hashem he was thanking god that she was killed and not taken by these terrorists. And he went on to explain after saying, what kind of a world do we live in where a father would thank his God again and again and again for the death of his daughter? Because death is better than being taken to Gaza where she would be beaten, stripped naked, raped, tortured, mal you know, um, unfed, thrown into a dark hole, raped again, beaten again, and so on. And he was unsure whether that would last for one day, one week, one month, one year, or longer. And the torture that she would endure, the mental torture was spared because her life was taken. It was beyond profound, but it's something I can't understand as a father myself, as you know, someone myself who has been close to death. Life, to me, is the single most important thing. Everything else you could figure out. Loss of finances, business, you know, friendships, you could figure all that out. But loss of life, that's permanent. You only have one life. And the way that this man explained it, in all fairness, it cut me to my core. And my, I, I don't even have words in order to express the sadness that I have in my heart for him. 
And I'm sad because as I was speaking to my cousin, who happens to be a Sabra, he's you know from Israel, even though that they live in Toronto. We have about 200 second cousins that live in Israel. And from my cousin's um, words, he keeps in touch with so many of the groups that they all appear to be alive, though many of them have already, of course, they enlisted. They were part of that 300 plus thousand uh, called up. Some of them just went anyway. Some as old as 60 years old that were in, you know, uh, munitions, paratroopers, um, you know, um, uh, all, all different forms of the, of the military, uh, logistics. And they all put on their uniforms and go into work. And I'm sorry for all of them, but there's also the whole notion of what's going to happen in Gaza because these animals, these terrorists, they use Palestinian children, women, you know, uh, the elderly as human shields. And this is not a new stunt for them. So my question to you is sort of, how does the Israeli Defense Force, how do they get past? Because I also don't want to see innocent Palestinians. I don't want to see them killed either. The problem, though, and my cousin again explained it best to me, every person in Israel right now as a result of this attack knows somebody who either was hurt, injured, killed, or has a family member or friend who was injured or killed. So it's not just some guy Joe from Mississippi who you have absolutely no connection to whatsoever other than that we're both American. They all have a connection. And the loss of that child, the loss of that individual, feels to them as if it's a loss to them and their family. It's one big giant family. And I really don't want to see a, you know, um, uh, a, you know the, the Hatfields and the McCoys all over again, where it is this ongoing, never-ending fight where it's just more and more life lost. However, I also want to point out there's 150 hostages, some of which are still are toddlers. They took toddlers. They took, remember, there's a video of they took a grandmother and they put her onto a motorbike between two of them. The sheer terror on her face. They need to, they need to release these hostages immediately. Well, let me, let me answer one of your questions. How do the soldiers cope with this? That was one of the questions that you had. And I know exactly how this feels after several major incidents. Uh, the Beirut bombing, where we lost 243 Marines and sailors, right, in one instant. Same day, the French Foreign Legion lost 76 uh, legionnaires. And the Israelis' division headquarters was struck in the same hour and lost 56 men, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, but you have this feeling of despair at first. And then what you have to do is you've got to quickly go back to doing your job. These reservists all need to, are going to mobilize they're going to get their gear. They're going to be uh, given their assignments. And let me tell you something. I've been to Israel. I almost married an Israeli. There is 
no jobs small enough in that country. Every job has meaning. Every job. Now, the battlefront, I mean, can I point something out? Ashkelon was 73 kilometers from Jerusalem, right? That's about, what, 45 miles uh, to the north, uh, to the uh, to the northeast uh, of, of that city. That country is technically very small, all right? And if you think that you're doing a rear area logistics job in northern Israel, you could quickly be drawn into this if Hezbollah or the Syrian extremists start firing to the north. The entire country, we've learned now, is coverable by these terrorist rockets. So you've got to pray for them. But these guys are going to get busy, and what you're going to get is professionalism of arms. They are going to go about doing the task of getting the hostages out one way or the other. Uh, it's going to, either going to be a national effort, and this is where some of our Arab allies can step up. And I hope to be bringing that message to mm -hmm. some of the people that I know over in the Middle East this week, is that here's the chance to step up. United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, buy them out. If you got to buy the 150 hostages out and you got to take 1,000 Hamas out of prisons in Israel and can guarantee something, but a deal's going to have to be struck. I saw a father whose daughter had been kidnapped, who he's confirmed was alive. And he was saying, I would like them to negotiate it out. Hamas is now poised to carry out what I think is a massive trap for the Israeli army. But I don't think the Israeli army is going to fall for it. You've been to Gaza before, mm. right? It's going to be a lot bigger pile of rubble. This time, there will be very few completely navigable streets in Gaza City. All right? The population is going to naturally move as the strikes occur, and the Israeli army is going to move in piecemeal, not rushing in. The professionalism yeah. of arms is how we cleared the city of Fallujah, which, by the way, five times smaller than the Gaza Strip. But it's how we ate that city a little bit at a time, four different divisions led by Iraqis. 90% of the population was moved out of the way. Were there unfortunately casualties? Yes, there were from civilians and military alike. But we did not mass murder, you know, we didn't kill the population like ISIS did when they came to every city. They started mass murdering Shia Muslims by the thousands. And when we took back the city of Mosul, it was bloody, but it was led by the Arabs, it was led by the Iraqis. When we took back the city of Raqqa and leveled ISIS, and we had to. Because everyone there was ISIS, everyone in the city was yeah. ISIS. So, so let me. That's how so yeah. So let me ask you this though. Let, let me ask you this though. A Hamas official recently spelled out the battle uh -huh. tactics. Now I want to get your opinion on it because he spelled out the battle tactics, operational security, and hostage exchange mm -hmm. strategy on Twitter. Right? Is this what you're talking about? Can you? Unpack for, for my listeners what you've learned to that effect. Could they really do this on Twitter? They really spelled out what they're looking for? Well, actually, for? they spelled it out on an Arab news channel and, uh, and, and defined everything, told us how long they had been planning this, what their intention was. They've created, look, they fired over 5,000 
rockets already into Israel. And these aren't like small rockets going into Israel. These are large rockets, most of which were intercepted by the Iron Dome system. He spelled out with glee how they managed to keep their mouths shut for two years and that the objective was always that they were going to attack on October 6th plus one day, right? The anniversary of the uh, seven day, uh, sorry, of the 1973 war surprise attack by the Egyptian army. Uh, And they wanted this to be a big surprise. And the strategy was quite simple. Kill every person you see, abduct some of them, bring them back to be used as leverage to get prisoners out. And he was he was practically shouting with glee that he was going to get prisoners not from Israel, not just the thousand some odd members in Israel. He was going to get Hamas members from every country in the world exchange for them. He wants Hamas prisoners in the United States that have been charged, you know, that have been put in with for terrorism. And he thinks he's going to get them back alive in exchange for these captives, which is quite bold when you come to think about it. But he did spell out that these small groups, they didn't know what each other was doing. They all had one task and they flowed out from there by blowing down the border wall, rehearsing their attacks on the Israelis. Hey, I have photographs that they took off the the, the, the Hamas dead. Uh, they had tank identification cards. They had PowerPoint charts with little maps all over them with their objective zones where that cell only of 10 or 15 guys was to go, which means that there was a massive command cell that knew where all of these people were supposed to go. Uh, it, it was very well organized. But to be honest, uh, you know, I wrote a massive book on how to identify how terrorists operate. This was old school terrorism. It was like every act of so terrorism the- in the history of Israel was carried out on one day at one mm-hmm. time. Wow. So, Malcolm, there's so much misinformation and disinformation and malinformation right now being thrown out there. So the other night I was sitting with this um, this friend of mine, and she turned around and she said, a lot of this is America's fault. I said, well, how do you come up with that one? Well, she had heard that many of the rockets of these 5,000 rockets were rockets that were left over by the United States in Afghanistan. And I, I said, can you show me, Google it for me right now, where you heard this from. And, of course, she tried, and it's just not true. But there is an underworld of people, some of whom were former military, that are making these bullshit accusations or allegations that we left all of this equipment in Afghanistan, which of course was just picked up by the Afghani rebels and then sold in the black market to countries, uh, you know, or to or to Hamas or to you know any of these other terrorist organizations. And I said it's just bullshit. And I said, you know, fortunately for me, I have people like Malcolm mm-hmm. Nance who can explain to me because he was there and he knows. <laughs> The fact that it's not true, you know, can you please do me a favor and just let this one just go? Let it rip. That one is the least of what I've heard. Okay, I heard that every rifle 
that Hamas was using, the, the M4 carbine-style weapons, were all sold to Hamas by the Taliban, right? And that, or they were given by the Ukrainian army and sold to, not the Taliban, to Hamas, to Hamas by the Taliban. It's just ridiculous. Those rockets, you know, it reminds me of that Saturday Night Live skit of where the 9-11 truther says that, uh, you know, the CIA blew up the towers. And then I, and on the skit, they go, let's go to a member of Al-Qaeda and ask him his opinion. And the Al-Qaeda guy goes, we yeah. did it. We did it. This is <laughs> Exactly. Hamas built those rockets. They have been smuggling in iron and steel. They have they had smelting facilities. They had munitions factories. These are just iron tubes with a warhead. They had perfected rocketry over there with the help of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syrian government, which is backed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and managed to make all a whole class of eight or nine of rockets which could fly, you know, some as far as 100 kilometers into Israel. And they managed to fire off 4,000, which means that they had to have had hundreds of firing positions that the Israeli army didn't know about that day, some of which were done and dug out in tunnels that they had created with just a firing port with an angle that was predetermined. Uh, same thing out of hospital buildings, out of apartment building windows. All right. I mean, it was adaptive terrorist warfare. Understand the terrorists win because you can't imagine they can do these things like build their own rockets. You have to make some fantastical lie that Joe Biden gave them to the Taliban and the Taliban shipped them all over there. How? Show me how space, time, physics, tonnage, and weight that those rockets got to, to Gaza, right? Surrounded by the Israeli Navy yeah. and the Egyptian army. You can't, but you know what? You can build them right there on the spot. These people are intelligent. They're inventive, but they use it for terrorism. And apparently they know how to use them. Same with the rifles, by the way. Same yeah. with the so, rifles. Look. So let me go back to your let me go back to your book for a second because you know you recently wrote of Hamas and their commanders admired you know um, Hamas, uh, Hamas commanders ISIS ISIL brutality they studied their tactics and even brought the ISIS black flag alongside their own right I mean could you imagine Hamas hunted they killed abducted every person that they found on the border of Israel, including locals, Latinos, Europeans, Africans, Asians, residents, and guest workers. That day, they killed Jews, fellow Muslims, Christians, Druze, Buddhists. Didn't make a difference. They were walking on the street. They were in a car. You know, they saw them. They're firing at them. They systematically, as you were saying before, they systematically looted the dead. So the question I really have for you is when did Hamas turn the corner into such fanaticism? And how, does, how do you explain, how do you deal with them now? You know, that's a very good question. 
Um, and I think that at some point we're going to capture a commander who will who will laughingly in his face and our faces talk about the ISIS of ISIS vacation of Hamas. Look, you know, I worked against Palestinian terrorist groups, the old PLO, the PFLP, you know, the all of these subgroups in Lebanon, you know, the the palace that were living in Palestinian refugee camps, which are like cities. Uh, and these groups, even the ones that were infiltrating in one or two suicide bombers or, you know, were relatively benign compared to the power of Israel, compared to the intelligence apparatus of Israel, the combined intelligence apparatus of Jordan, Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and the Egyptian intelligence agencies. They all have fingers into, the, into Gaza, right? But this was different. And at some point in the, it wasn't two years ago, all right? It had to have been within the last five years. There was an ideological shift in Hamas, not just to talk about that, that quote that has been abused in the Quran, where it says, if you see a Jew, uh, you know, and you, you, and who is hiding behind a rock, who is behind a tree, you are to find him, hunt him out and kill him, right? Uh, that was not in the proper context and it was never intended to be used past the year 632. Right. Uh, but they have brought that to the point where they have combined. And this is what makes Hamas different. Hamas was always a nationalist group. They had land. They wanted back land. ISIS existed on cyberspace. They took land, exterminated everybody and built a land until exterminated themselves. Hamas has made a hybrid where they have nationalistic values plus land with ISIS's horrible kill every individual brutality. If that was Hamas doctrine two or three years ago, then it, it's escaped a lot more than that. Hamas talks, you know, like many of these terrorist groups, they talk trash, right? We will kill every Jew. We will kill everybody out. Mm -hmm. This time they matched it to a doctrine and a plan. And between you and me, and uh, everybody listening, this plan came from Iran. Don't tell me all of the combined, you know, hundreds of years of combined terrorism training experience they have, which started, by the way, in blowing up the first American embassy in Beirut in April of 1983, because I was there when that happened, killing, what, six, uh, 89 people blowing up that embassy and killing all the CIA officers who were in that country, Iranian. The Marine Barracks Fund, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps plus a Lebanese militia. The French Foreign Legion, the Israelis, suicide bombing, uh, mass suicide bombing became the norm for them. Suddenly, Hamas professionalizes in terrorism that's half, half ISIS, half Palestinian nationalists. This could only be done with training assistance and ideological uh, extremist existence by Iran. <clears throat> All right, so Malcolm, look, you and I both know that Donald is an absolute fucking ass clown, right? He, I mean, he's militarily, he's yeah. an idiot. Politically, he's an idiot. Geography, you know, geography wise, you know, he doesn't know, uh, you know, doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And yet... 
And yet, Trump goes out and he calls Hezbollah very smart amid the Israeli-Hamas war. Can you do me a favor? Because I can't put my finger on it. I can't put my finger on it. What the fuck is he talking about? I mean, it's like President Biden steps out and he gives a speech that is so presidential and it's so on point. This is how you behave with your, with your allies. What does Trump do? He comes out at some rally speech, God knows where, West Palm Beach or in another, you know, location where the rally goers have four teeth and three brain cells. And all of a sudden he's sitting there and he's talking about under him, if he was president, this would never happen. That Israel made mistakes. They're weak. Netanyahu is weak. But Hezbollah, as he described them, is very smart. Can you just unpack for my listeners just how many things that he said wrong here, considering Hezbollah and Hamas, which he, of course, pronounces as hummus, the food, are completely different? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, man's a, the man's a fucking idiot. I mean, you use the right phrase, ass clown. And the funny thing is, it's a time of horrific, of horrific tragedy for one of our allies. This is bigger than 9-11, proportionately. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. It's on par with the, what the entire Russian army did in Ukraine for a year. They did in 48 hours. They've killed more people than the entirety, uh, you know, than, than, than the greatest number of people killed since the Holocaust, for God's sakes. You know, and... You know, two years, or what was it, almost four years ago, in 2019, I was invited by the Auschwitz Foundation to speak at a conference in, at Auschwitz called Never Again, Really? And the premise of the conference was that people were, uh, were embracing fascism, were embracing totalitarianism, were embracing the degradation of Judaism again. And you know what? I'm going to throw some big players up there. Elon Musk has done more to attack Judaism, Jews, and Israel this year alone by taking off all the Nazi safeguards, by getting rid of all of the ability to stop uh, anti-Semitism on Twitter, which is now a cesspool. It's a cesspool of information. These are Donald Trump supporters. These are Donald Trump supporters, and Donald Trump speaks to them it's by blaming Israel. There's plenty of time to assert blame, but not while Jews are being killed, not while, you know, uh, American citizens, 25, are, are dead alone. That's what we know right now, right? And like you said, citizens from all over the world, yeah. and, you know, and making fun of the name Hummus and saying he could do better than Joe Biden. What is he going to do? Give the West Bank? To the you know is Jared Kushner's job to give the West Bank to Hamas? That's it, it, is that what his great plan was? Who I, who has any idea what he's going to do? But you know, um, White House uh, Deputy Press Secretary uh, Andrew yeah. Bates 
came out and he was like, I typically don't comment on the 2024 presidential race or any of its, um, you know, uh, the potential nominees. But Trump's remarks, as he put it, were both dangerous and unhinged. And he goes on to say, it's completely lost on us why any American would ever praise an Iran-backed terrorist organization Mm -hmm. as smart or have any objection to the United States warning terrorists not to attack Israel, especially now as Israel is fighting back against one of the worst acts of mass murder in the country's history. And he goes on, he says, this is a time for all of us to stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel against unadulterated evil. That's what the president is doing as commander in chief. Now contrast that to Donald the schmuck, right? There's Donald the duck, and then there's Donald the schmuck. He was at Club 47, some event in West Palm Beach, and the fucking asshole goes on, and he blames Joe Biden for the deadly Israel-Hamas war by baselessly claiming that the Biden administration has funded the attacks with the $6 billion in oil revenue that it recently unfroze as a result of the prisoner exchange with Iran, which has historically funded both Hamas and Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Trump goes on. I mean, he can't leave good enough alone. Trump goes on, and he says, again, stupidly, and then two nights ago, I read all of Biden's security people. Can you imagine? First of all, I don't even know what that means. I read all of Biden's security people. Can you imagine? Okay. National defense people, and they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. I mean, what does that mean? How do you? I don't know. I'm asking you. You're the expert in this shit. I have no idea. And yet, and yet, the Jewish population still, many of them support this asshole. I don't get it. When does enough become enough? At what point in time? 91 federal charges. Four criminal indictments, soon to be five. I understand Arizona is looking to drop an indictment on the guy. Sexual assault accused. What more does the guy need to do where people just turn and say, you know what? Honestly, enough is enough. Do we need to have an attack in the United States in order for people to say this is all on this is all on Trump? This is all on his doing, that he's speaking to the people that you were just mentioning. Again, the ones I describe as four brain cells and, you know, four teeth and three brain cells, that he's speaking to them. Look, what, that, what to honest, do here? And a, a terrorist attack in the United States would be the best thing he could hope for at this point, because they seem to be rooting for this. I had some idiot on Twitter, and you were reading a quote, one of my quotes from Twitter earlier. I had some idiot on Twitter who was claiming to be a super spy out there talking about they've documented thousands of Hamas terrorists coming through the southern border. He has a picture of a guy who has a tattoo in a foreign language on his arm, and the tattoo is a Kalashnikov. Yeah, he's right. The guy, the guy's writing was in Hindi. He was from India, and he was in the Indian Army. They're not Muslims. 
all right? Ask Vivek Ramaswamy and and uh, and Nikki Haley. They're both Hindi Muslims. I mean, I'm Hindi Muslims. Listen to me, I'm getting confused. Wow. Listen, they're both Hindi, but you know, or speak the Hindi language, and uh, you know, and uh, and come from that faith. But th they don't know anything. Hamas doesn't infiltrate people through the border. The 19 hijackers who came here and carried out 9/11 were welcome guests and given preferential treatment to go to school here and flew in business class from Saudi Arabia. That's how many hijack, how many terrorists get here, all right? And I, I got to be, God forbid, anything happened in this country. This is why, like you said at the beginning of this program, law enforcement is stepping up its game, putting its feelers out to make sure that no one's doing this. But I know a lot of cops that hear this craziness, and they, too, believe that the border is awash with al-Qaeda and ISIS you know, and that Filipinos or Filipino Muslims coming here to carry out suicide attacks. You know, well, what about all those Russians who come through the southern border? All right. And, and you know, not Ukrainians. I'm talking Russians, uh, you know, or that live in his buildings. I don't know. All I'm saying is this. This is not how terrorists operate. Terrorists don't sit around waiting and going, wait for the six billion dollars in funds to be released to hospitals. They don't. By the way, none of those none of those funds, by the way, no. have been released. That money is still sitting in the account, and it is earmarked for humanitarian and this, purposes. Like, and I believe, if I'm not this, mistaken, is it Cutter who has right. financial um, control over the distribution of that money? Term that they're saying all money is fungible. When terrorists don't work according to your fourth quarter budget, terrorists don't wait. Five right. years to see if there have been American hostages released and whether, you know, medical and doctor supplies will come from Doha, Qatar, all right, to their country in order for them to carry out an attack. Terrorists fight on their schedule. Yeah. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, you know where they get your money? Every time you fill up the gas on your car. Once oil hits a barrel and disappears into the global cesspool of oil... There's no identifying which country it comes from, all right? I've had people, when I lived in Abu Dhabi, I lived there for 10 years, I had people come to me and going, there's a small ship coming over from Iran filled with barrels of oil. Do you know where I can market it? No, I will turn you over to U.S. Customs. But in the <laughs> Arab world, once it hits those other ports, disappears. That's where Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps money comes from. It comes from the illicit sale of oils, resources, and industries that people in the West and the East need and want to pay a lower price for. That's how it's done. Terrorists don't wait for you. Terrorists didn't wait. Tim Scott, that idiot, the senator, was out there crowing about that, that it's despicable Biden-funded terrorism. Really? Ah, uh, no. This is a guy who, one, apparently can't read. Two, apparently can't think. And three, apparently will say any stupid thing that comes into his mind so long as he thinks his constituents will slap him on the back. Uh, it doesn't work this way in the terrorism world, people. Terrorists get their money from things you pay for. Hey, so let me ask you this then, because I'm also watching as many people are pointing their finger and saying that 
this um, failure of Israel's defense falls on the shoulders of Benjamin Netanyahu. And as well as what was happening politically inside Israel during the run-up to the invasion. What's your opinion on that? Well, I don't know if it falls on the shoulders of Benjamin Netanyahu personally. I mean, he is the commander of, you know, he's the prime minister of Israel. He is morally and uh, legally responsible for the defense of Israel, right? It's his first primary function. Now, let me talk about Israeli intelligence and U.S. intelligence, because I've been hearing this story. American intelligence is a failure because they did not get the intelligence that the Israeli Mossad, their clandestine service, the Amman, which is the military intelligence apparatus of Israel, and Shin Bet, which is the internal intelligence agency and police force of Israel. All right. And Egyptian Muhabarat, Jordanian Muhabarat the Turkish national intelligence, or any of our allies. According to them, it's our fault because those people didn't get this. Well, the Egyptians said that they had heard grumblings. They had seen an increase in manpower, money, equipment, and training. But that is not... The, there's a big difference, and trust me, I worked at the National Security Agency, where you get intelligence like this. Terrorist one, this is terrorist two. Attack Israel with a 1,000 men. It doesn't work like <laughs> right. that. When, when it gets quiet or when they do a deception campaign where they talk on their cell phones like they're all doing shisha and shawarma and they're actually out training, they will use word of mouth in order to exchange their orders and, uh, you know, orders, action plans, logistics plans and operational go dates. And the problem is. Perhaps Israel relied too much on cell phone intercepts. That's what I've heard. Uh, but you know what? I'm certain when they go back and they piece this together, they'll have all the pieces. And it takes the belief. And this is where we have a problem, too, because we you know, oftentimes I hear people say that we're superior to others. You're not superior to others. You just may have more invested. You may have better morals. You may have a, a, a code. You may have a legal environment that you operate in. You may be the pinnacle of the Western world. But I had two young Navy seamen think up the most ingenious, devilish terrorist plan in a terrorist training course that I was in. So ridiculously stupid, I destroyed it immediately. And I have never said what it is. Because two people who sit down with a cup of coffee and give it a few minutes thought can be quite inventive. And that's one of the things that we fail yeah. to understand. Our opponents are thinking human beings. It's like it's like they said in the movie uh, The Most Dangerous Game, right? Or that or that uh, exhibit 1967 at the at the at the Brooklyn uh, Zoo, which is the most dangerous animal on the planet. You look in a mirror. Okay? People right. horrible. But in this particular circumstance, Israeli intelligence had a lack of imagination, which is precisely what happened to us on 9-11. Even though we had seen signs, I heard Condi Rice at that time say, no one would have thought about flying an airplane into a building. Well, she lived about 100, she worked about 100 yards from where a man flew an airplane into the White House, you know, a, you know, a decade earlier. Yeah. So if, lack of imagination is what happened here. Hamas capitalized on it deceived the Israelis and attacked 
at their level of resource. The point is, they're finished. Halas, as yeah. So let me ask you this, because as the hour comes to an end, and it's unfortunate, but it's, it, it really does. It goes too fast. My last question for you for the day. What's your biggest fear for the region as this thing grows larger? Nobody knows this region. I don't know anybody legitimately who knows this region and has more insight into this unfortunate, this disgusting, this horrific uh, invasion than you. What's your First, biggest fear? You need a better class of friends. Second, <laughs> well, that's true. I'm not going to argue with you on that you. one. You know, but after after coming out of Otisville, you lose a lot of friends. I, you know? I come from the intelligence collection world on the street, right? The guys who have the headphones on, the guys who go out and can speak Arabic. Um, but I have to see all of that intelligence collection from a geopolitical realm. So if I get terrorist one, this is terrorist two, please proceed to attack Israel. I still have to think through how Hamas, you know, another terrorist group could come in. U.S. forces in the region. Who is the target of this attack? Uh, we've caught people with communications like that. Ronald Reagan at the LaBelle disco bombing in 1986, right, where the guy actually said, hey, go ahead with the attack. But here, with regards to Israel, I have to think about the, what we call the next order uh, of magnitude in terms of explosiveness. And that is, is that Israel finds some evidence that, Ham that Hamas coordinated directly or informed the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. We or it may not be the Israelis that gives us that evidence. It might be the Syrians. It might be an Iranian Revolutionary Guard mm -hmm. Corps man who has a copy of the plan. And I have seen actual enemy plans handed to us. Uh, you know, a certain... Wait, wait, I'm so sorry. Did was it Trump? Was it Trump who handed you those plans? No, no. It was <laughs> no, oh, okay. I'm by just, two people I'm just... with clearances who knew better, right? So you know that's <laughs> the big difference there. I wasn't in someone's bathroom. So the point is, is that this could spiral out of control. What if there's an attack on Israel that's sustained from the north that starts killing twenty, thirty, fifty, one hundred more? Or we get that direct evidence that 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 the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps helped them coordinate this entire mission, right? Does America come in and help? Oh, Does America come in? I don't know. My problem is, is that what if the death toll goes up to 2,000? You would be very hard-pressed to not have people think that Iran might need to be punished on an atomic level. Right, it's possible. I have yeah. to think of all let's, the let's, horrible let's hope not. worst case scenarios. Right now, Hezbollah starts shooting from Lebanon. All of these groups in Syria start shooting, and now we got a two front war. But the best thing you got going for you right now is the Jordanians are not tolerating any of this. The Egyptians will not tolerate any of this. Right? There will not be an expanded war beyond the terrorist war. But it might mean an incursion into Lebanon again. I mean, the, the Israeli army, I was there in 1983 when you went to Beirut. Uh, and then we're embroiled in an insurgency for 10 years that cost you 600 soldiers. Uh, but this is a war of yeah. different on a different scale uh, in the in the history of Israel. And people are going to be writing new doctrine manuals based on it because it's a hybrid of Iraq 
and 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 Afghanistan and 9/11 all concentrated into a 140 square mile, uh, you know, square kilometer grid uh, off of Gaza. Well, Malcolm, as always, thank you, my friend. You stay safe in your travels. I'm going to get you back on the program when you get back. Hope to see you here in New York when you're around. Hopefully, of course, Friday 13th comes and goes with no issues. And hopefully that this uh, all gets resolved as quickly as possible for these hostages, uh, Americans uh, as well. It's it's devastating. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. And there are there are no words other than, Mm -hmm. you know, stand with Israel. Yeah. Well, I'm all with Israel. And they are our, our brothers, our sisters, our allies, and some are American citizens. No one deserves this. No one. Yep. But I know who deserves extinction. No one. Hamas. Yep. Well, you be good, my friend. And like I said, stay safe. And I will see you back here right. very, see very soon. soon. And now for today's mea culpa. It's hard to care about the comings and goings of Donald Trump and the MAGA agenda when the Jewish homeland is under existential threat. But we once again saw the stark difference between comments made by President Biden in support of Israel strongly condemning Hamas atrocities that includes the beheading and burning of children and the shooting of infants and the deranged, dangerous comments made then by Donald Trump. Trump had already politicized the attacks by blaming President Biden. But he took things even further into the land of deranged by the heaping scorn on Israel itself for failing to anticipate the attack and lecturing the Jewish state to step up their game. He labeled the Iran-backed Hezbollah militant group very smart, comparing it to an authoritarian he rates highly for ruling 1.4 billion people with an iron fist. And I'm talking about Chinese President Xi Jinping. And he also referred to Israel's defense minister as a jerk for purportedly revealing weaknesses in the country's northern defenses. To top it off, the former president said Mr. Netanyahu let us down by refusing to aid the deadly strike Mr. Trump ordered against the commander of Iran's elite Quds force on January 3rd of 2020. Israeli communications minister Shlomo Kari said Trump's comments to supporters and in a television interview on Wednesday night showed he could not be relied on. It is shameful that a man like that, a former U.S. president, abets propaganda and disseminates things that would hurt the spirit of Israel's fighters and its citizens, Carl told Israel's Channel 13. White House Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates called Trump's comments dangerous and unhinged. On Thursday evening, Trump released a statement saying there had been no better friend or ally of Israel than when he was U.S. president, something he likes to point to by threatening American Jews to support him or else. With Trump, we are seeing how a demagogue handles an international crisis where six million American Jews are traumatized from what they're seeing on their television screens. With Biden, they get a leader. With Trump, they get an unhinged asshole who, like everything else, has made this about himself. 
Well, let me tell you something, Donald. It's not. And I hope this is a reminder to all those who believe that Trump belongs on the world stage and that he is a child who rules by temper tantrum. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. (laughs) 